Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. You're listening to Episode 76 of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World, where we look at mysteries from the twin perspectives of faith and reason. In this episode, we're talking about weird questions. I'm Dom Bettinelli, and joining me today is Jimmy Aiken. Hi, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. Jimmy, why are we doing a weird question show this week, even though it's not a Fifth Friday? Yeah, normally we do weird question shows on Fifth Fridays, but December is an unusual month, and our experience last year showed us what, you know, you could predict, which is that podcasts released between Christmas and New Year's, not as many folks are listening to because, you know, they've got other stuff going on. December is a busy time. People are doing vacation stuff during that week between Christmas and New Year's. There are a lot of things going on. They're seeing family. And so podcasts don't get as many listens that week. But for those who do want to listen, we wanted to give you something to listen to. And so for Christmas of week, we're going to be talking about could there be new books in the Bible? That's And the answer on that one is more complex than you might think. Could places like heaven and the new earth be planets in another galaxy? Could the Pope allow for his own impeachment? Could aliens receive the Eucharist? What would happen if a priest time traveled and tried to say mass before the Last Supper had happened? Why won't there be marriage in the age to come? If the Catholic Church has nihil obstats for books, does it have anything similar for Catholic speakers and teachers? Can a priest give himself confession? How did animals get to Australia after the flood? And uh, if alien races existed, could you marry and or procreate with them? And finally, will God allow a zombie apocalypse to happen? <laughs> I love these questions. Awesome. So, folks, I hope you enjoy that. I know I will. And uh, let's let's give it a listen. I am Cy Kellett, your host. This is Catholic Answers Live. And on Fridays, we try to continue to do our explaining and defending the Catholic faith, but in, in ways that have a little twist to them. And uh, we continue that uh, tradition. Uh, this hour, Jimmy Aiken, senior apologist here at Catholic Answers, is our guest. Uh, his latest book is Teaching with Authority. He's also the author of many other books, including A Daily Defense, uh, 365 Days Plus One to Becoming a Better Apologist. Hi, Jimmy. How are you? Doing fine. How are you? I am good. Are you ready for some weirdness? Oh, yeah. Because I'm always ready for weirdness. <laughs> I think that's true. Yeah, because mm-hmm. um, uh, it's uh, time for weird questions with Jimmy Aiken. Mm-hmm. And these are uh, we get a lot of uh, different questions here at Catholic Answers. And this is fun because we pick out some of the ones that are really off the beaten path, mm-hmm. like hmm, maybe haven't seen that one at all before. Some are or, more off than others. But yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's true. Uh, but uh, but we have kind of our bread and butter. You know, that uh, and this is not it. This is more of our like marmalade jam or something. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So weird questions uh, with Jimmy Aiken and all the questions come to us via Internet means. Yeah. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. OK. Um, are you ready for yeah. some, for a weird question? Yeah. Anthony uh, wants to know, how does the church view works like three Maccabees, uh, the prayer of Manasseh, Psalm 151? 
wait, I thought there was only 150. Or the Greek Ezra, which are found in Bibles of the Byzantine tradition. The local councils in Pope Damasus and Innocent of the 400s and the councils of Florence and Trent obviously canonized the 73 books book canon. But was there ever an official statement or teaching on these other works, which were sometimes in the Bible? Yeah. Uh, so for people who may not be familiar, uh, there these are works that are sometimes uh, listed. They're sometimes found in certain Bibles, including in the Vulgate. Um, but they haven't been deemed canonical by the Catholic Church. Um, they are, or some of them are, considered canonical by uh, various Eastern Orthodox communities. They were originally part of the Septuagint, or at least they're found in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament that the apostles and others used. But the Septuagint, because it was a collection of books, it wasn't a single book because printing technology didn't allow for that. They didn't even have movable type in Europe at the time. Um, so you you couldn't uh, yeah. make a modern Bible that's just all one volume easily. And so as a result, that the Bible was a collection of different books, which mm -hmm. for the most part, originally they were all written on scrolls. And also you can't make a scroll beyond a certain length or it's it's ridiculous to try winding it and it'll tear oh, yeah. in half and things like that. Okay. That's why even though we today think of the Bible as one book, we talk about the book of Genesis mm -hmm. or the book of Exodus because originally those were separate books. Right. And so it really wasn't a single book. It was a collection and collections can have fuzzy boundaries. Yeah, and, and, right. And so, you know, some people's collection would include all of these. Some would have a few more, some a few less. And so different editions of the Septuagint had uh, some variability in what they included. And in uh, the Catholic Church, certain books eventually were recognized as canonical and eventually that was infallibly declared. But there were these other books that were sometimes by some Christians considered canonical and those have not been ruled on by the Catholic Church. If you look at the uh, at Trent's decree, for example, which is the infallible one, and what it has to say about the books that are sacred and canonical, it says these are Oh. But it does not say, and there are no others. Okay. So okay. Um, so the church hasn't made a determination about these other books. Um, I, I, I don't foresee the church making a determination anytime soon mm -hmm. regarding them. Um, I do see one path by which some of these books one day might be considered canonical. Um, and that would be if we're able to achieve reunion with some of the Greek Orthodox communities oh. because uh, or some of the Eastern Orthodox communities, because just like when uh, reunion is achieved between the Catholic Church and another group and that other group has canonized some saints yeah. in the interim. Right. They get added to the church's liturgical calendar. Right. I could see a situation where if we reunited with um, uh, with an Eastern church or Eastern churches that considered some of these books canonical, mm -hmm. there might be a situation that would persist for probably for some time. It wouldn't happen all at once. But I could see a situation where um, you would find hybrid formulas like the, cat, the the Latin church considers these books canonical, and in the East, these are also considered canonical. Mm -hmm. This is one of the ways, like if you read the Catechism of the Catholic Church, this is one of the ways that some of the theological differences 
between Mm -hmm. the Latin church and the Eastern churches are covered. It'll say in the West, this happens in the East. This is believed to be the case. And the church doesn't simply doesn't need to decide between those because of the uh, exigencies of the of the circumstance. Right. And so I could imagine a situation where if we reunited with a group that did consider these canonical, there might be like a hybrid formula for that. And then after a number of of centuries of reflection, the church, there might be a growing awareness in the West that maybe maybe some of these should be considered canonical, and there might be a determination at that point. Um, just like it took several centuries to determine of reflection for the Holy Spirit to guide the church into recognizing the books that we that have as there. canonical. Right. Yeah. So you're safe with um, the books that have already infallibly been declared uh, canonical right. works. Uh, but uh, don't but want to assume the others don't assume, are. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. Uh, well, thank you very much for that question, Anthony. I, we got another uh, chance for another uh, weird question before we go to uh, the, have to go to the first break. So let's go to Matt, who asks, is it possible that God has placed heaven or the new earth of Revelation on a planet in another galaxy? So there's an or in there, and I'm not sure if it's an appositional or. Um, I'm not sure if if uh, the listener is yeah. identifying heaven with the new earth or or oh, distinguishing I them. I, right, right. Um, the but let's take them separately. Mm-hmm. So the ordinary understanding of heaven is that it's a realm where God's presence manifests in a special way, and it's all joy and everything like that. Um, Another way that heaven is is understood today is as uh, complete union with God spiritually. Um, well, it, there would seem to be some kind of dimensionality to heaven mm-hmm. because heaven has received bodies like Jesus and Mary's bodies, right. even if they're not manifested the way they would manifest here on earth. It's still they're still there. Um, and, uh, there also seems to be some kind of time to heaven in addition to space because you can like Jesus go to heaven and then come back from heaven. Mm -hmm. So, um, so there is, there does seem to be some kind of time space dimensionality to heaven. And that means hypothetically, you could locate heaven on another planet if God wanted to manifest his presence there in a special way. Okay. I don't see any evidence for that. I don't see any positive evidence for that. The only thing I could imagine that would support that is the fact that Jesus ascends uh, and that the Greek term for heaven is the same as the term for the sky, Uranus. Mm-hmm. Also, um, uh, the same thing with um, with the Hebrew term. It's the, it's the heaven same and for sky heaven and sky are the right. same thing. Um, but I, I tend to view that, as most people do, as a metaphor mm-hmm. for a realm that's superior or better than ours, but isn't really in outer space somewhere. But, um, it, but you know, I, it's not logically impossible that God could manifest his presence in a special way for the blessed on another planet and take them there. Mm-hmm. Uh, in terms of the new earth, it, also, I can't eliminate it as logically impossible. However, the standard view would be either 
that the so-called new earth is going to be a renovated version of this earth, an upgrade. Okay. That's, that's what seems to be presupposed in the church's documents, although they haven't really come down definitively on that question. Okay. Um, the other view, since the appearance of the new earth is coupled with the appearance of a new heaven, could be an entirely new creation, not our universe at all. I see. Okay. Uh, Matt, uh, thank you very, very much. Weird questions with Jimmy Aiken uh, this hour. Uh, so we won't be giving out the phone number because we take all the questions. Uh, these are questions that are submitted online, uh, and we select them particularly because they have that special weird quality. Um, not a, that, not yeah, in a pejorative although, sense. Although but... <laughs> evangelizing aliens is almost becoming normal. We get that one comes up constantly. Yeah, and you really should. Um, if you know any, please do. Yeah. Um, uh, it's time to get your Christmas gifts ordered. Well, um, so for some people, past time. For some people, it's not time yet. But in general, I guess it's time. Um, so this weekend, uh, there's a special. We've got a very special limited time offer through the weekend from now until Sunday at midnight. Use promo code CALIVE18. You save 35% on hundreds of items in our online shop, including uh, Made This Way, uh, the new book from Trent Horn and Layla Miller. Uh, this weekend is a great time to take uh, care of Christmas shopping and save that 35%. Also, 5% flat rate shipping in the continental U.S. I am fairly certain. As a matter of fact, I feel I am 100% certain Jimmy Aiken's brand new book, Teaching with Authority, is also on sale. 35% off hundreds of items. Use the code C. Live 18 when you shop at shop.catholic.com. There's only one Catholic Answers Live. Are you a coffee drinker? If so, you can now enjoy a coffee roasted to perfection by the Carmelite monks of Wyoming. Delicious Mystic Monk coffee is roasted and prepared by monks in a hidden cloistered monastery and is available in over 25 varieties. All Mystic Monk coffees are works of perfection and labors of love. For more information on how to purchase Mystic Monk coffee, visit mysticmonkcoffee.com. That's mysticmonkcoffee.com. What's stopping you from becoming a Catholic? Why can't women become priests? I don't understand why I have to earn salvation. How is it possible that God created everything? Why do I need to confess my sins to why a priest? Why is the Catholic Church so unwilling to recognize the Catholic Church is too rich? Catholics worship Mary and our community. As far as I'm concerned, all religions are equal. You are called to communion with Dr. David Anders. Tonight, 11 p.m. Eastern on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Blessed Advent to you. Thanks for being with us here on this Friday. So happy to have you. And we got Jimmy Aiken with us. Jimmy's the, uh, the senior uh, apologist here at Catholic Answers. It must be coming up on 26 years now. Yeah. Uh, coming up on 26 yeah. years, apologist here at Catholic Answers. And even for Jimmy, some questions are uh, unusual or maybe even unique uh, across those 26 years. So we, we focus on the unique and unusual questions this hour as we do Weird Questions with Jimmy Aiken. Uh, we go now to a question from Paul. Could the Pope make a canon law that allowed for the impeachment of a Pope? In principle, yes. Um, the uh, the office of uh, the papacy is something that cannot be taken from a pope against his will. Um, but there are – it is possible for a pope to set conditions on his resignation, including conditions that involve other people. And so oh. we have – 
Um, we have situations uh, that we know of recently where various popes have said, if this happens, then you are to consider me resigned. Like um, Pius Twelfth thought because of his opposition to Hitler that Hitler, when he invaded Italy, would, you know, run troops right up to the Vatican and seize him and yeah. then try to manipulate him. And so because he thought he, he Hitler might do that, he wrote a letter saying, if I'm arrested mm-hmm. by the Nazis, you consider me resigned and elect a new pope because I don't want to be manipulated by them. Right. Um, similarly, uh, subsequent popes have been known, including, for example, John Paul II, have been known to have letters um, where they will say, if I get into a really bad health condition, yeah. where like I'm going to be disabled or whatever for an extended period, rather than leave the church without effective leadership, mm-hmm. you cardinals who make the determination, yeah, he's, 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 you know, out of it for an extended time. You key cardinals who make that determination are to consider my resignation effective. I'm leaving that in your hands and oh. then you can elect a new pope so the church can have effective leadership in the same way. Um, the Now, those have been handled not as uh, writing them into the code of canon law, but there's no reason a pope couldn't do that. Mm-hmm. Um, so it would be possible for a pope to say, uh, write a new canon or amend the current canon dealing with papal resignations in the code of canon law to say, if a majority or two thirds or whatever of the College of Cardinals or some other group determines that the Pope has done something really bad that impairs his ability to lead the church, then his resignation is thereby triggered. Now, so it would be possible for a Pope to write such a canon, and if he goes along with it, if a future Pope had those conditions triggered, uh, you know, say two thirds of the College of Cardinals say, we think it's time to go. You've, you've really yeah. messed up and the church needs a new leader. Um, then um, uh, then his resignation would be effective. But the thing is, since the Pope is the one who writes canon law, who gives it its authority, a future Pope could undo that. He could say, oh, guess what? That canon doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. Um, or I'm I'm pu- I'm putting it in abeyance on yeah. this occasion right. or something like that. So you, he couldn't write a law that would irrevocably bind future popes to accept such decisions. But hypothetically, he could write one and future popes could acquiesce for the good of the church to its use. Fair enough. All right, Paul, thank you very much for that question. Uh, we go to Timothy's uh, question. Again, it's weird questions with Jimmy Aiken today. We don't in, in any way uh, to use the word uh, weird pejoratively, just unusual for us. Uh, could intelligent non-humans, an alien, receive the Eucharist? Uh, provided certain conditions are fulfilled. The first condition is they have to be validly baptized. So that's kind of the fundamental thing. Baptism is the sacrament that allows us to have access to the other sacraments. So in order to receive the Eucharist legitimately, uh, a non-human would have to be validly baptized. Okay. And whether that's possible is a whole other question. Um, is it possible to validly baptize, say, an alien of some kind? Yeah. The And that's a question we've covered before, and I'm sure we'll cover it again. But 
uh, rather than go through all that now, let's just assume that the alien is validly baptized. Okay. Okay. So that's the first condition that needs to be met. Second condition that needs to be met is the alien needs to have a digestive tract similar to ours um, because uh, the – otherwise, if you imagine like an intelligent tree, they have roots. They have no mouth. Yeah. And so um, they wouldn't be able to receive – there's no place in their physiology for them to receive the Eucharist. Um, I mean, maybe the precious blood, but not the host. Mm -hmm. Yeah. so they'd have to be able physically to receive it. Yeah. And a second component of that is their biochemistry would have to be such that the accidents would not be toxic to them yes. or sufficiently toxic. Because right. we have people, even human beings, yeah. who, for example, are celiac. They can only have a tiny amount of gluten in the host. They have to use um, gluten as a protein that some people are allergic to. If you are, you're called celiac. And um, and for some people, the gluten allergy is so severe that um, that is like a peanut allergy mm-hmm. or something. It can be a huge health danger if you receive a normal host for certain celiacs. Um, but uh, we're able for those people to make low-gluten hosts. We can't remove, according to the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith. Can't take it all out. Can't take it all out, but you can arrange for low-gluten hosts to accommodate as many celiacs as possible. But you could imagine a uh, an alien race that's allergic to any amount of gluten. Mm-hmm. So it would have to be, or, or any amount of alcohol yeah. or whatever, so that even though transubstantiation has occurred, your body looks at the at what it's receiving and acts as if it's just received gluten or as if it's just received alcohol right. or whatever the other components are. And if that's going to kill are. you or if that's paralyze you. kill or you or paralyze you, then obviously yeah. you wouldn't uh, be receiving the Eucharist in those circumstances. But if you have an alien who's validly baptized, has a deject a digestive uh, system able to receive the elements and is not going to be poisoned by them. Yeah. Yes, you could. All right. Very good. I suppose if you had like a sulfur-based life form that you couldn't get touch them with water because mm-hmm. they'd explode, mm-hmm. then you couldn't even baptize them. Then you're... I'm, uh, yeah. I don't know that a sulfur-based life form would ordinarily have that happen. Really? Um, but... Like phosphorus. Oh, that, okay. That's what I was thinking of, actually. Okay. Yeah, phosphorus. Yeah. yeah. Um, then you better not baptize them. Yeah. Because that's just not right. Yeah. Or silicon might be so hot that you uh-huh. you couldn't uh, get close to them with the Eucharist. <laughs> right. Then the problem is not for the alien, but for you. Yeah. Um, well, and the Eucharistic elements. They might be incinerated before you could oh, administer that's them. Oh, right, right. Along with your hand. Um uh, Eric asks the following, uh, uh, so far, my favorite question of the day. I love time travel movies. I love time, time travel questions. So assuming time travel is possible and the priest and parishioners are transported back t- uh, in time before the incarnation of Christ, mm-hmm. since the Last Supper hadn't happened yet in the natural timeline, is it possible to have a valid Eucharistic uh, consecration, and I just want to say before you answer this, mm-hmm. I just want to know the storyline where it just so happens that a priest and his parishioners mm-hmm. 
transported back. Like, what happened? Yeah. Well, they might have been, you know, gathering for mass and start singing the opening hymn, and then wham, all of a sudden, uh, you know, Thanos transports somebody them. <laughs> transports them back to dinosaur times or something. So they're all there and they have the question, do they go forward with mass or not? After they investigate their immediate surroundings and make sure there's no velociraptors around. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Got it. Um, So this is a very interesting question. Time travel before the incarnation or uh, time travel has some interesting, creates some interesting questions regarding the sacraments, Um, depending on which direction in time you're traveling. Um, but, uh, in this, particularly backwards. And in this case, I would say, well, if God wants their priest to be able to confect the Eucharist before the incarnation, then he can do that. So, um, there's, I mean, Um, God's omnipotence is not limited. If he can make it possible in 2018 to confect the Eucharist, he can make it possible in 1 billion BC. That would actually be before the dinosaurs, but, uh, let's say 70 million BC. (laughs) Okay. Um, he, he could make it possible to confect the Eucharist then, um, because he can apply the fruits of Jesus's uh, work to any age he wants, just as we, for example, see people before the crucifixion were still forgiven by what Jesus would do on the cross. So, um, so God could do that. The question is, do we have any evidence oh. that he would make that possible? Right. And that's something that we don't, I, I, I'm, I don't have any evidence concerning presently. Mm-hmm. So I would say it's an open question with an undefined answer at ah. this point. Now, if this kind of thing started happening a lot, then that <laughs> would we can hope that would <laughs> yeah, that would force additional theological reflection accompanied by additional guidance by the Holy Spirit on the issue. Yeah. And evidence and arguments might be developed that would allow us to answer the question one way or another. But at this point, I'm unaware of any strong evidence or arguments pointing in one direction or another. What we do know is that wherever you are in time, God loves you and will provide for you spiritually. Whether that would include the continued ability to receive the Eucharist is an open question. Uh, I wouldn't presume it one way or another because we do see situations here in our time where, let's say, somebody gets stranded on an island there's no priest, yeah. there's no bread, there's no wine, right. and God still loves you and will take care of you spiritually, even though you don't presently have access to the Eucharist. Oh, and the yeah. same thing could happen with time travel. You're like on a time island. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and, and it's entirely possible. I don't even know this when they evolved, but wheat and grapes might not even exist 70 million True. years ago. Yeah. Well, seven, maybe. Yeah, they might not. Uh, yeah. Well, um, should we take the next one? Yeah, let's do the next one. I, I'm just looking okay. at the clock trying to figure out we what the timing is. We can always hold it over if we don't finish it. Okay, so sh- sh- uh, Steve wants to know, uh, why wouldn't there be marriage in the age to come? With the sex organs on our res- oh, Will the sex organs on our resurrected bodies not work? 
As to why there won't be marriage, Jesus tells us we're going to be like the angels in heaven, and they don't reproduce. They're immortal beings who don't need to replenish their numbers by reproduction. And so that's presumably why we won't need to reproduce either, because we're going to be immortal, so we won't need to keep the race going through procreation. The race will just keep going because we're all immortal. Um, In terms of will the... Uh, will our uh, complete anatomy work? Presumably so, because we're going to be in human form but perfected, but we won't have, we'll have such mastery, this is the common opinion, we'll have such mastery of ourselves that it won't be a burden that we don't engage in reproductive activity. Fair enough, Steve. Thank you for that. And also uh, thank you to uh, Tim, oh, Eric uh, for the time travel one. Weird questions with Jimmy Aiken. More coming up right after this on Catholic Answers Live. Howdy, folks. This is Jimmy Aiken with a special message. The StarQuest Network is fulfilling its mission to explore the intersection of faith and pop culture. And in the past year, we've reached stunning new heights. Our programs are reaching broad new audiences with a message that helps us discern good entertainment, make sense of the world, and share the gospel with others. The support of our audience is vital for this work and has helped us grow closer to meeting our financial obligations. For that, We're very grateful, but we still need to close the gap. Every new gift extends our deadline, but until we eliminate our deficits, the future of StarQuest and your favorite shows remain in question. That's why it's crucial that we hear from you this Advent and Christmas, the time when nonprofits receive most of their support for the year. If you're already a supporter of StarQuest, we're very grateful, and we ask you to prayerfully consider increasing your support at this time. If you're not yet a supporter, please become one now. We urgently need your help, and every gift counts. Could you give $15 or even just $10 a month? That lets us provide more than 40 hours of professionally produced shows with compelling content. We have special thank you gifts for donors at several giving levels. If you're a business owner or just want to provide a leadership level of support, we now have a special giving level for sponsors, like in public broadcasting. For $500 a month, you or your business can sponsor one of the shows on our network, including Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World. Listeners will hear a message in every episode thanking you for your sponsorship and giving your website. We'll also have your name and website on the SQPN webpage and in the show notes of every episode during your sponsorship. Whatever level of support you can offer, whether large or small, please show your support for StarQuest this Christmas, and remember that your gifts are tax-deductible. Just go to sqpn.com slash give. That's sqpn.com slash give. And may God bless you and yours as we approach the celebration of our Lord's birth. Welcome back to Catholic Answers Live. Weird questions with Jimmy Aiken uh, today, and uh, we soldier on. Jimmy, of course, is senior apologist here at Catholic Answers, and all of these weird questions came to us uh, via internet means, uh, they came to us digitally. Uh, I don't know how else to say that. David asks this, uh, Jimmy, mm-hmm. if you can have a nihil obstat for books, mm-hmm. why doesn't the church have a similar system for speakers and Catholic teachers? Actually, it does. Um, so, and it, it, and it has several systems. It doesn't have a single one, but it has things like that. Um, one that, um, that, uh, people maybe have heard of because it's a few years ago, it was kind of in the news. Um, 
for theologians teaching in Catholic schools. Uh, they have to receive uh, a, a mandatum from their or mandate mm -hmm. from their bishop. There's also a related procedure, but I won't go into that. But basically, they have to get clearance to teach Catholic theology. And there are situations where they can be stripped of that. Mm -hmm. So, for example, Hans Kung, uh, oh, German right. or Swiss theologian, um, back in the 60s and 70s was eventually because he was he was dissenting from church teaching publicly, he was stripped of the right to call himself a Catholic theologian. Now, that didn't stop him from teaching other things mm -hmm. in a university system, but he could no longer teach Catholic theology as a Catholic theologian. Um, so, uh, so that's one way that happens. There are others. Uh, now, it's kind of formalized for the university system, but there are similar things that get, end up getting applied to Catholic speakers and so forth, mm -hmm. um, especially these days here in the United States after the sex abuse crisis of 2002. Oh, right. Diocese impl in implemented all kinds of safe environment policy things, and so it's regular here at uh, Catholic Answer and other apostolates for the um, for speakers to have to like take um, a, a training thing on how to and get certified as like I'm cleared for and I've had a background check and I'm cleared for contact with young people and so forth things like that. Yeah. Um, also, you may need a, um, uh, a you know, letter of recommendation from your pastor or your bishop to speak yep. in certain areas. Um, also, catechists that teach in parishes typically are certified by their diocese for after having gone through a course of instruction on how to be catechists. Mm -hmm. uh, they don't typically, the diocese that I'm aware of don't just take somebody and, and put them to work, they typically have to go through a course of study before they're, um, before they're licensed as a catechist. So there are um, uh, equivalents of an imprimatur or nihil obstat for people in addition to books. All right, David, uh, thank you very much for that question. Um, let's go to Steve's question. Um, as we continue weird questions with Jimmy Aiken, Steve asks, Jimmy, can a priest give himself confession if he is in a state of mortal sin and needs to say mass uh, and receive the Eucharist? Uh, the answer is no, he can't. Uh, you cannot give the sacrament of confession to yourself. In fact, um, it, it, just like you can't baptize yourself, you can't anoint yourself and so forth. But... Um, there is a procedure in canon law for how to deal with this situation because it does arise. There will be situations where a priest, you know, does something. He's he needs to go to confession, but he doesn't have access or time before he needs to celebrate mass. And he does, by divine law, as the celebrant, need to receive communion at that mass. He cannot simply confect the elements and not receive yeah. everybody there. The celebrant is the person who must receive. Okay, and so um, so because that situation arises, um, canon law has a provision for dealing with it, and the basic solution is that he needs to make an act of perfect contrition. Uh, perfect contrition is a turning away from sins based on charity, the supernatural love of God. That's what makes it perfect. It's not perfect in intensity. It's perfect in kind. Uh -huh. The perfect kind of repentance from sin 
is sin motivated by love of God, an awareness that God is infinitely good, and so you need to embrace him instead of the sin. And so if you make an act of perfect contrition, then you're already reconciled with God, even though you haven't yet been able to go to confession. It sort of inaugurates the forgiveness that the sacrament will then complete. And so um, so what happens in these situations is uh, the priest makes an act of perfect contrition, and that reconciles him with God. And then he goes ahead and celebrates Mass. And then uh, at his earliest reasonable opportunity, he goes to confession when he does have access to a priest and completes the sacrament that his perfect contrition inaugurated. Oh, all right. Uh, I guess it shouldn't surprise us. The church has a provision for this. Mm-hmm. It has a provision for almost everything. Uh, Brian asks, how did animals get to places like Australia after the Great Flood? FedEx. Oh, that makes perfect yeah. sense. Of course. I hadn't thought, you know, Jimmy, yeah. you make it so simple. <laughs> Sometimes these complex questions need a simple answer. Yeah, yeah. just FedEx them over there. Yeah. I, I don't know if you can FedEx a kangaroo, though. I, don't, uh, I mean, a kangaroo koala. may not like it. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah. May the box Good luck may, getting them in the may, box. The box may bump around a little bit in transit. <laughs> um, so to give the question a straighter answer, um, the uh, if you accept that the Great Flood was universal, meaning it covered the whole world and that it um, occurred during, you know, uh, human times, then um, you would presumably I mean, you could imagine things like, well, maybe God had some other ark. Mm-hmm. you know, that carried the Australian animals or something. Yeah. Um, but that we don't have any evidence for that, and that's not the way Scripture seems to present things. You would, you could then imagine, well, they, you know, they migrated quite quickly. Um, they, there might have been a land bridge or something, but then we don't have evidence for that either. Um, you know, a land bridge linking Australia and yeah. and uh in Eurasia yeah right um, okay. there and it's not just australia but it's you know all over the pacific anything that's not a, and north america too although there was a land bridge there that we know about uh, but it's everywhere that has life yeah on earth right. it's not attached to eurasia how did it get there um you, you the most plausible way preserving what we know and given the assumptions that I mentioned, would be miracles that um, God somehow, uh, you know, miraculously enabled these animals to travel in a way that doesn't leave records and that then created the appearance of an ecosystem that had been there for millions of years. Because when you look at the way these these animals and plants relate to each other and the genes they share and things like that, it really looks like they've been there. And the fossil record locally, it looks like they've been there for millions of years. So um, so you'd have to invoke some kind of miracles to preserve all that data if you assume that the flood was universal and happened during human times. Um, The evidence, though, is sufficiently strong that these ecosystems have been there for millions of years and that um, one of the ways the animal life got there 
one of the ways, not the only one necessarily, but one of the ways is that the continents were originally joined and then split apart millions of years ago and the animals subsequently evolved to be different. This is one of the this is one of the arguments um, that was originally proposed for continental drift yeah. um, because it, there was an, it was noted that, wow, we've got animals of a certain type here on the coast of Africa, and yeah. we've also got similar animals on the coast of South America, and it looks like these two coasts fit together. Yeah. Maybe they were joined at one point, and then over millions of years they drifted apart, and the animals developed into slightly different species. Um, so uh, assuming that all of that evidence is true and that we're not just going to miracle it away, then um, the logical solution would be to say the flood was not universal. That oh. whatever the flood event was, and we know there were lots of flood events mm-hmm. in in that part of the world, whatever the flood event was, it wasn't the whole entire earth as we understand it. It was a violent, destructive event that affected the land this is one of the things ah, yeah. um, that uh, you become aware of when you study Hebrew, like the word for land, uh, ha'eretz, mm-hmm. can mean either like the holy land or land in general or the whole world. Okay, and, so and you have to pick which of those meanings it applies to. So when Genesis talks about the flood affecting ha'eretz, you have to determine which of the just what the scope of the flood is, and it and it's not required that it be absolutely global. Oh, okay, fair enough. Are you I, I, and are you permitted to, to to also look at the text and say maybe this is an edifying story that that and it's not necessarily history, or is the, that the degree to which it's I, I avoid calling things edifying stories because people think, especially in Genesis, because it's, it's not, it's going to cause people unnecessary anxiety about what you mean. Um, What I can say is that in the, it's commonly acknowledged that the first 11 chapters of Genesis are written in a different genre that relates to history in a different way than later chapters are. And they blend both uh, information that is of a historical nature with a kind of reconstruction uh, yeah. that uh, that includes symbolic elements. This is something the catechism talks about, how the account of the fall mm-hmm. of man um, describes a real event at the dawn of human history, but Certainly. it uses yeah. figurative language to convey what happened. And uh-huh. so... Um, there, the church has, and I, I gave a talk about this at, or about some of this yeah. at our uh, recent conference on faith and science. In Is 20, that talk available anywhere? Because that it, was really it, helpful to people. No, thank you. It's coming out. Oh, it's uh, coming out. My okay. understanding. Um, but it, in fact, there'll be a video so you get to see all the slides I showed. Oh, good. Um, yeah. But the church has looked at the first three chapters of Genesis in particular and identified, okay, this element looks symbolic, this element looks symbolic, this element looks symbolic, and so forth. It hasn't done that for the chapters dealing with the flood, which are Genesis 6 through 9. I see. But presumably the same principles would apply to all 11 mm-hmm. of the chapters of the primordial history so that um, they would be describing things that really did occur 
but in a figurative way. Yeah. And so it's not just an edifying story. It's an, I would say, edifying story or edifying narrative that has traction in history. So it is communicating something of a historical nature, but in a way that's different than later chapters that are more straightforward historical narrative. That makes sense. And and there are uh, kind of memories outside the Bible of a great Middle Eastern flood. That seems to be a common theme. Yeah. Oh, shows up all kinds of places. I, uh, I, um, we mentioned on the show the other day that uh, it's in, for example, um, the Epic of Gilgamesh, yeah. where the equivalent of Noah is uh, Utnapishtim. And My favorite guy, Utnapishtim. Yeah, I love and, that name. And there's a favorite line of mine in, in I, Claudius, where Herod uh, Agrippa is uh, trying to communicate who Noah is to some Romans. And he says he's, he, um, he's the Hebrew Deucalion. Oh, and that's because that's Deucalion the, <laughs> was the Greek equivalent of Noah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. right. Um, uh, hey, don't forget. Uh, well, I, I guess you probably wouldn't forget that Christmas is coming, but you might forget that there's a great sale going on at shop.catholic.com. You can get hundreds of items, 35 percent off this weekend at shop.catholic.com. You just put in the promo code CA live 18 and get your 35 percent savings on all kinds of books including uh, Jimmy's brand new book, Teaching with Authority. They can even and, FedEx it to you. And, then, <laughs> and it might, it, we won't guarantee it'll come with a kangaroo, but it, you, it will come in a FedEx box. Uh, you can also get uh, the brand new book made this way from uh, Trent Horn, Layla Miller. Go to shop.catholic.com, put in the promo code CALIVE18 and get that 35% savings. Bringing you the truth. Catholic Answers Live. A lot of people think that street evangelization involves yelling out of a bullhorn telling people that they're going to hell. Not so with St. Paul Street Evangelization. Our methods are non-confrontational and effective. We simply offer information on the Catholic faith along with rosaries, miraculous medals, and prayer. Pope Francis wrote about how beautiful it is to see street preachers joyfully bringing Jesus to every corner of the earth. Street evangelization is fun and fruitful. Join us today at streetevangelization.com. Catholic Radio gives us an opportunity to become part of a larger family. It can be so lonely when we are struggling in our faith or just try to live our faith on our own. But Catholic Radio connects us to that larger community of faith where we're able to get the support, the encouragement, and the grace that we need to not just struggle on, but to really celebrate all the blessings that God brings into our life through our Catholic faith. Dr. Greg Popchak thinks Catholic Radio is important. So should you. bumper music nick welcome back to catholic answers live it's friday it's uh, the midst of advent christmas is coming hope all things are well with you and yours uh, jimmy aiken here with us this hour for weird questions with jimmy aiken it is so much better to do weird questions with jimmy aiken when you're here than when you're not it's very oh, sh- it's very short i like show. to think i add something to, yeah, to weird questions do. with jimmy aiken. i sometimes just sit here in the studio and ask weird questions mm-hmm. and nothing comes back when you're oh. not here it's uh, it's very disappointing uh this uh steve uh, wants to know, Jimmy, if we found sentient life mm-hmm. of another species on Earth or on another planet. Okay. Uh, so would it, meaning intelligent life. Yeah. Okay. Intelligent okay. life. Yeah. Uh, would it be a violation of natural and or moral law for a human to marry and or procreate with that being? Um, 
my sense is that there would be a divergence of opinion among moral theologians on this. Now, this oh. is not something I can I can say with confidence because moral theology has not really confronted itself with this question. So, as far as I'm aware, you're not going to find papers on this in in. Uh, We've in got like ten journals. Star Trek movies, and nobody has taken this. I, up. I don't. I not as far as I'm aware. All right, um, but um, I think there are some principles that moral theologians do employ that could be applied in ways that would lead to different answers. So the one principle is um, that you would want at least there to be in principle the possibility of procreation in order to have marriage. And um, if you make that principle absolute, then you would say, no, you can't marry an alien because aliens are going to be a different species. And oh. by definition, other species cannot breed with us mm -hmm. um, if they're really a genuinely different species and not just like a border case or something. Right. Like we can, we know because we've got uh, the DNA in ancient bones to prove it. We know that Homo sapiens could breed with Neanderthals because we're really not separate species. Yeah, there's quite. like we're related enough yeah. that it was possible, and Homo florensis and things like that. Um, so, and the Denisovians. Uh, we also have Denisovians. I didn't want to point out that you had left out the Denisovians, but well, okay, you know, come on, keep um, it together. Aiken. So, so those are like border cases. You could say, well, they're not really separate species. There's different subspecies yeah, of right. human. But if we're talking actually different species, then they would not be able to breed with us naturally. But since we're talking science fiction, mm -hmm. we get to introduce genetic engineering. Dun, dun, dun. And that means that there could be a possibility of hybridizing uh, and in some way assisting the reproduction uh, to enable it to happen. Now, that whatever technology was w used to do that would have a number of hurdles to clear, uh, morally speaking. It would have to, for example, not just happen in a Petri dish. Yes, would, right. It, it would, because that's already been ruled uh, immoral because it's replacing God's design for reproduction. Yeah. It's not just assisting it. Yeah. Um, but that would uh, but I could see someone arguing, well, what if we found a way to enable, even though they are a different species, to enable uh, reproduction to occur in a way that assisted but did not replace God's design for reproduction. I think the chances of that would be vanishingly small if you're dealing with a genuinely alien species. Yeah, right. Um, so I, I won't detain us anymore on that. I just note it as a possibility. The other principle, though, see, marriage is not just about procreation. Mm -hmm. It's also about the good of the spouses. And this is uh, this. If you look in the Code of Canon Law, for example, it talks about the primary ends of marriage are uh, the way it defines marriage is as a partnership of the whole of life between the spouses oriented to the education and procre the procreation and education of offspring. So it has the good of the spouses and procreation and education of offspring as its goals. So um, I could imagine other people saying, well, the procreation aspect of marriage has always in a way been secondary, even though from a keeping the species going perspective, it's the primary thing. Yes. In terms of an actual individual marriage, the good of the spouses has been the primary thing because um, uh, because 
Um, you have situations where people can validly get married, even though you know they're not going to be able to reproduce. Yeah, because right. because they're let's say they're too old, or one of them is known to be infertile, or things like that. Yeah. That doesn't stop marriage from being possible. Mm-hmm. And so, if you look at that principle and say, well, there is a kind of complementarity between, say, um, you know, a a male Vulcan and a human female. Let's call them. Sarek and Amanda, okay. um, then whether or not they can reproduce, mm-hmm. there's enough complementarity between the two of them that the good of the spouses would be authentically promoted, and therefore it would be logical for them to be able to marry. Mm-hmm. Um, so I could imagine some moral theologians taking that position. Um, I'm not guaranteeing they would, and that position would also have hurdles to overcome, like because any aliens we actually met would be so physically and psychologically different from us that is there really the kind of complementarity mm-hmm. that you would uh, that that you would need to authentically promote the good of the spouses, even if we set aside the procreation issue? Right. Right. Um, because you it, because I mean, there is complementarity between all humans uh, in I mean, in a certain way, but you can't have two male humans or two female humans marry each other. There's not the right kind of complementarity yeah. for a marriage. And in the same way, it w- even if you had a male human or a, a, a female human and a male Vulcan, mm-hmm. if, if or alien, is there really enough complementarity there to enable a marriage? Um, yeah. So it, there would be hurdles on that front, too. Um, something strikes me about the question that uh, th- this would be distinct from marrying an animal uh, because sentient implies the presence of an immortal rational soul. Uh, well, it it presumably implies that, although we don't it, it, I mean, it would imply a rational soul okay. that would presumably be immortal. Um the idea that animals don't have immortal souls is a common opinion, but not a church teaching. Oh, okay. But it's the uh, lack of a rational They soul. don't have a rational soul. And the rationality um, is the basis of part of the complementarity. Yeah. Um, because right. you can relate to another rational being in a way you can't relate to an irrational one. Yeah. Um, I can see a possibility of how we could be genetically related to aliens. If another mm-hmm. alien species had taken some, say, um, Neanderthals mm-hmm. and put them on another planet. Yeah. And they evolved slightly differently from us, mm-hmm. but they'd be kind of close. Well, in, in, and so hence I set aside fringe cases like that yeah, where yeah. they're, you know, uh, I, I, I wanted to go to genuinely no relation to us aliens. Yeah, right. Um uh, okay, let me get you another question here. Okay. Uh, you know what? I don't think we've had any zombie questions. Okay. I, I feel like that's a real lack. So let's go with can we, no, can or will God allow a zombie apocalypse possible to happen? Will killing a helpless and disabled and starving zombie be criminal or immoral? Okay, so we've got two questions. The first one um, is we will have to wait and see. Um, now, based on what we know about the laws that God has has implemented in this universe, the kind of supernatural zombies that you find in some fiction don't wouldn't exist here. So we could safely presume God will not allow that kind of zombie apocalypse to happen because it would require a fundamental change in the laws of the universe. Um, however, 
um, like an, a, a plague type zombie thing where you have a plague that gets unleashed that causes lots of people to become mentally defective and carnivorous. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, I don't see any likelihood of that happening, but the only way to know Glad to hear that. <laughs> yeah. The only way to know is wait and see. Um, God has allowed other disasters to occur. He could allow that disaster to occur. I can't eliminate it altogether, though I don't see it being the most likely way civilization might fall apart before the second coming. Um, in terms of the second question, could you read it again? Oh, um, would it be okay to kill one of these uh, uh, disabled and starving zombies, or would that be immoral? It's going to depend on the nat- on the kind of zombie you're dealing with. If you're dealing with a genuinely undead zombie, so the person has died and what you have now is an animated corpse, mm-hmm. then it is not going to be immoral to, uh, to stop the corpse yeah. from moving. Um, it could it could even be construed as somewhat merciful if there's some residual, even though there was a death and this is an animated corpse. Maybe there's some kind of feeling of starvation going on and you're putting no. them out of their misery. Um, on the other hand, if um, if it's just a person who is uh, who is brain damaged and is behaving in a destructive way, you could put them, uh, you could kill them to stop their aggression, just like you could oh, kill a murderer. Attack you. Yeah, yeah. Right. But if they're disabled, um, then uh, you can't just kill them just to, uh, just to put them out of their misery, just like you can't kill a patient in a hospital who's suffering. All right. Uh, a lot of uh, excellent, weird questions. Thank you for those who send these weird questions. Are you getting more of them now that we're doing this show, or is it about the same? Uh, well, no. It, uh, it When we do the show, it stimulates people to send in new send, ones. All right. So continue to send your weird questions to Jimmy Aiken because it makes for a good show. All right, Jimmy, that was, uh, that was great. Excellent. So what is going to be the subject of our next episode? Our next episode is a patron request episode, and for January, the patrons have asked to hear about Holy Blood, Holy Grail, which is a conspiracy theory involving Jesus. And if you've ever uh, heard or read or been menaced by people talking about the Da Vinci Code, (laughs) this is the basis of that. Interesting. So, Holy Blood, Holy Grail. Awesome. All right, folks, so send us your feedback by visiting sqpn.com or the Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World Facebook page. Send us an email to mysterious at sqpn.com or send a tweet to at mys underscore world with a hashtag of mysterious feedback. Until next time, Jimmy Akin, thank you for exploring with us our mysterious world. Thanks, Dom. Once again, I'm Dom Bethanelli. Thank you for listening to Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World on StarQuest.